Hello again. Welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind. It's a broadcast or a podcast that is for those of us who want to do a little virtual Bible study. Virtual Bible study does not take the place of in-person interaction with other believers who are searching the Word with the same goal that we have here at Knowing God with Heart and Mind, and that is to read Scripture so that we can know God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And so, welcome again to the latest edition. This week we are reading those lectionary passages scheduled for May the 28th, the seventh Sunday of the Easter season. We're rapidly approaching the seasons of uh, or the season of Pentecost and the Sunday of Pentecost, but right now we're still looking at the formation of the church. This Sunday, the uh, uh, May the 28th, <laughs> get my head on here, May the 28th is uh, the Ascension Sunday. This is the Sunday where we remember the day that uh, the apostles and all those disciples gathered there witnessed Jesus ascending to heaven. And there's a lot of significance to that, of course, but uh, for now, let's uh, prepare our hearts with prayer, and uh, then we'll have some quick announcements and get into the scripture. Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to join together in this unique and modern format, but for the same purpose for which people have gathered around your word for generations, to know you better through the reading of scripture, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our shared journey. Now bless us as we come together to interpret and think and be together as one body, made so by the love of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection have purchased our freedom to be a part of your family, and therefore we are family. So our family now gathers around your word with a sincere and genuine belief that you are with us and that you are, in fact, our true leader. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Amen. Well, it's been quite the week here at Parsons Prairie. We've had uh, an enormous amount of rain, and uh, the rain has swelled No Name Creek well out of its banks. The water's reached high into our backyard. Now our house sits well above the floodplain, and we're not in any danger here at the Parsonage. But, uh, but it's kind of thrilling, I guess you could say, to watch the water ascend from the creek banks and creeping up to the to the edge of the the uh, mound that our house sits on and uh, it's always kind of interesting to see how rapidly it recedes that's the other thing that's kind of remarkable to me um, it comes up quickly and it goes down quickly it may stay swollen for hours even days at a time but when it's done it's done and uh, 
I kid you not, we we saw the water rise rapidly until the duck rock was completely overwhelmed and invisible. And then in a matter of uh, just probably an hour, the water receded and went back into the banks just that quickly. And uh, this morning we awoke, looked out the window, the sun was shining, and the creek was running at its almost normal level. Just amazing how quickly that changes. I'm, I'm sure there are uh, soil and water conservationists out there who can explain to me the hydrodynamics of the situation, but uh, it's kind of amazing. Uh, this morning the birds are singing, and right outside the window of my home office I see Siggy, the plastic owl, standing watch over our porch to make sure those nasty robins don't poop all over everything. And uh, just a few feet away from him is a robin on the grass, searching for worms and weeds going back to shore up her nest and feed her young. And sitting on the clothesline is a red-winged blackbird. And that's life on Parsons Prairie. This week I visited my next place of service at Shiloh United Methodist Church. Spent several hours there with the staff of the church and met a few of the key leaders. Got another look at the community. Spent some time with one of the families there, and uh, I can see that the Lord is at work there, and our time together there will be blessed. I am uh, excited about our new home there, and at the same time, sad about our departure here. One of the difficulties of being the pastor is that you must, for the sake of the mission, invest yourselves in the lives of the people in the community where you serve and you must be willing to live as though you plan to stay for the rest of your life and you can't uh, you can't really fake it you, you just have to surrender yourself to the possibility that you're going to be there forever and when you do that well you plant trees you plant relationships you give birth to ministries you you share sacred moments with people. You spend time uh, at hospital beds and uh, celebrating new life with babies and adoptions and that sort of thing. And and uh, you you work alongside people and sweat and drive a nail or rake a lawn or something like that. You you worship together on Sunday and. You celebrate God's love together, and, and it's a very intimate relationship. And so, needless to say, when that chapter closes, it's a painful thing. And yet, life goes on, and the next season begins. And the love continues, as long as we welcome the love of Christ in our hearts and then express it towards one another. So our announcements this week aren't really announcements, but reflections. Still looking for what we will call the place where we're going to be and how we will refer to it in those conversations that are casual and we begin to find names for the things and, uh, 
an affectionate sort of endearing pet names is what I'm really talking about. So, you know, right now I'm I'm not sure, but I can tell you that down in those southern Indiana hills, among the forested woodlands of the Hoosier National Forest, and just off that uh, plain of of, uh, of rolling farmland and uh, coal mines and coal fields and and uh, oil wells to the west and Jasper sits in a unique situation because you have the the timber industry on one side and the beautiful deep rich woods and uh, long extensive forests and then on the other side you have the rolling hills that have been eventually flattened out into uh, far western Indiana and eastern Illinois and become the coal fields and the, and the uh, oil wells and the gas wells and all of that. So a lot of people don't know that Indiana has really rich and diverse uh, industry and uh, all different forms of uh, mineral and, and uh, and uh, substantive wealth of, of resources and uh, those hard-working German-descended people and all of those who have come alongside them over the years in that part of Indiana where I'm going are uh, have industriously and, and uh, ingeniously made uh, great strides to build community and society and, uh, and a strong economy in such an area. So it's... Uh, it's impressive for sure. Just as the people here in these flatlands and prairies where everything is so plain for several months of the year are now beginning to see, even with all the rain, the corn begin to rise and uh, the beans begin to sprout up and and uh, suddenly these dry ground, uh, this dry ground that is windswept all year long is starting to teem with life and soon the fields will be covered for as far as the eye can see with crops. Pretty remarkable. Well, let's get on to scripture now and uh, let's do some Bible study and see if you have any kind of inkling of a slightly different format. Well, you have to bear with me as I read through the scripture and uh, pontificate with you about it. Um, I was overcome rather suddenly with some kind of illness that I don't even know for sure what the nature of it is. But uh, I, I was I awakened in Jasper on Wednesday morning and found myself with swollen glands and a sore throat and... Uh, just so happened that I had a doctor's appointment that afternoon. Uh, as we make our arrangements to move on, I wanted to visit with my doctor, get my prescriptions up to date. And so, uh, thanks to God's providence, I went straight to the doctor the day I awakened with this condition. We took care of business. He mentioned that he thought my glands looked a little swollen. I told him my condition and described my symptoms, and he prescribed me with an antibiotic that I think is helping me quite a bit. But uh, I'm definitely prone to the uh, uncontrolled uh, occasional cough or sniffle. So uh, uh, my energy level is a little low, but I think I'm already on the mend thanks to 
God's providence. So thank you, God, and praise you for that. Our first reading today comes from the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to read uh, Acts chapter six or chapter one, rather, verses six to fourteen. And uh, here we go. This is from the NIV translation. So when they met together, they asked the Lord, "Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel?" He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him, beside them, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Well, there's the story of the Ascension right there. And uh, as you read that story, uh, a number of things jump off of the page. So, uh, first of all, I look at verse 6, and I see where... uh, they are gathered with Jesus, and they say, So is it now time for you to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now that passage is very telling because it gives you a sense of their frame of mind. They have witnessed the miracles of Jesus. They have witnessed his uh, cruel death. They have experienced their own doubt and and misunderstanding of the nature of 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 Jesus and and uh, but at this point and the scripture readings have taken us all over the place in the last few weeks but at this point we're in Acts chapter one we are in part two of Luke's uh, two volume or, or in volume yeah we are in volume two part one of Luke's two volume set that describes this whole thing that became what we now take for granted. So they just experienced the resurrection of Jesus and they have just been in his company for a short time. Now it doesn't say how long it was before he ascended into heaven. Some scholars think he may have been around for as much as two years before he ascended. And others think it was more like uh, a matter of days or weeks at best. So there's a lot of mis, uh, disagreement and misunderstanding about that. And at this point, rather than try to sort that out, what I want us to look at is the frame of mind that is represented in this verse, verse 6 of chapter 1. The apostles 
have assumed that now Jesus is risen from the dead and therefore he's made his point. They have at least come as far as recognizing that Jesus did not plan to be victorious and regain control of the kingdom on earth in some sort of military coup. They at least understand that his death meant something. They at least understand that he is far more powerful now in his resurrected form than he was before he was killed. They at least understand a little bit more about the nature of Jesus, but they still don't understand what the nature of the mission is. They still don't understand what it is that Jesus is trying to accomplish. And quite truthfully, I still don't understand at all. We don't understand. We have the benefit of 2,000 years worth of wisdom and uh, a great deal of help from the Holy Spirit along the way. And yet there are still certain mysteries about exactly when Jesus will return and what will be uh, the ideal purpose that we should serve in the meantime. Uh, there are some obvious things that we should be doing. And if you want to know more about that, please tune in to the podcast uh, next week. That will be a recording of my Sunday message, which deals more with that particular part of this. But for now, I find it interesting that their assumption at this moment as they stand on the Mount of Olives, looking out across the Kidron Valley and at the temple and uh, at the city of Jerusalem and, and the, the seat of government for the nation of Israel, the, the, the nation that David established in that place. And they look over there and they see Jesus in all his glory standing next to them and they say, So Jesus, when are you going to take over? Nobody could withstand you now. Nobody, but nobody could resist you now. And he says to them, and I think probably in a very matter-of-fact way, you don't know when this is going to happen, and it's not your position to know what this is, or how this goes down, I should say. He says, this is the Father's business. This is what only he needs to deal with. And so, in saying that, he probably has perplexed them a little bit because they're thinking, okay, fine, but in their minds, they're thinking it's still about taking control of that city down there. It's still about taking the, the role of world power away from the Romans and returning it to the seat of Jerusalem. And they are looking for him to be that descendant of David who once again takes this theocratic uh, government to the top of the food chain in the world's order. They're thinking in the limitations of earthly or worldly things. And Jesus seems to just divert them by saying, you're not ready to try to wrap your minds around what really constitutes the kingdom of God. And so, let me just tell you, that's God's business. Rather, 
what I want you to do right now is be ready because very soon I'm going to send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will empower you and bind you together and bind you with the Father and myself in a way that will enable you to take this good news to the people right around here in this area and to the people in the darker, more uncomfortable places where you don't necessarily like to be and even to the ends of the earth. And so, in a very subtle way, Jesus gives them a different idea of kingdom. In a very subtle way, Jesus says to them, you're looking for the restoration of this kingdom that you see down here in front of you. And I am telling you that the Father has something much greater in mind, and it is something that you can only accomplish with the help of the Holy Spirit. And it will send you far and wide and it will be more comprehensive than you can even imagine. Now, then in verse 9, we hear this description of Jesus being taken up before the very eyes and ascending into heaven. It's difficult to imagine what that scene must have been like. And uh, I've often kind of chuckled at the, uh, at the need for humans to try to quantify anything you know because because even though we casually deal with spiritual matters all the time and not all spiritual matters are are religious in nature it's just that anything that isn't quantifiable is spiritual that is to say it has some substance that can't be measured and so in order to try to give some sort of quantitative value to to a spiritual matter, humanity will often uh, uh, put some sort of icon or image in its place. Now, when you go to the, the uh, church and the memorial place on the Mount of Olives that is considered the place of the ascension, you can see a place where there are footprints in the ground that, uh, that are sort of permanently placed there and, and is said to be where Jesus ascended into heaven now. I'm not mocking the the imagery or or the spirit that caused that to happen, but I think it's sort of funny when I imagine in my mind Jesus ascending to heaven. Somehow, I don't imagine him leaping into heaven and leaving footprints behind. I I think Superman might leap into the sky and leave footprints behind, but I don't think Jesus does. But eh, it's okay. It really is. Nevertheless. They stand there watching Jesus sort of leave this realm. Um, I've often spoken of this in other settings, and I know this podcast is young, so I may not have said it yet here, but I am am, uh, sort of imaginative when it comes to the whole concept the Bible presents of the distance between heaven and earth. I, I don't think there's any distance at all. I think it's more a matter of dimension. And uh, so for me, it's, it's a realization that what we see and hear and feel in this place, in this world where we live, is what it is, but it is created. And the Lord God who created it all is in a place outside of space and time as we understand it. And that is as near as the space before your nose. Um, 
And so in those instances throughout the Bible where we see heavenly beings appear, most famously, I guess, is on the night of Christ's birth when the shepherds are in the fields outside of Bethlehem and the sky opens up and angels are there talking to them. And, and I literally imagine that happening not so much in the sky, but just in the space in front of them. But then how else would you interpret it if you were them? And it wouldn't be any different if it happened today. You, you would see what you see. But if somehow you were able to uh, get uh, to that scene where the shepherds are and you were to circle around it somehow, um, you might actually see the space behind where the angels are as being no different from what it was moments before they appeared, simply because the shepherds are seeing into a sort of portal that is opened between our space and time and the uh, timeless eternity that is the heavenly realm. So when I think of Jesus ascending to heaven, I'm sure that's how it appeared to them. And yet I imagine that these two angels have sort of come to open that portal and, and uh, escort Jesus through. And then as they get ready to go back through that portal, they turn around and say, okay, show's over, get to work. And then they close the doors and the apostles rightly are overwhelmed. So what do they do? They go down to uh, their place where they've been staying, this room they've rented in Jerusalem. And, and it's interesting that it says that it was a Sabbath day's walk. Um, I find that really fascinating. It's an interesting piece of information that Luke has included for us. And it's interesting to wonder what he meant for us to understand by that. Um, it sort of places the Mount of Olives and the place of the Ascension. It gives us a sense that, you know, one would have to walk all afternoon or all day to get there from Jerusalem. So it wasn't as though it was, uh, you know, in the immediate vicinity. And the place that is considered that site today is really a very, really short drive from Jerusalem. But I imagine, given the nature of the landscape and everything, that it was a bit of a walk to get from there over to Jerusalem. Uh, but maybe he was trying to say something else. Maybe he was trying to say, and so after they witnessed this, they were rightly overwhelmed and... Uh, I don't know, wouldn't it be funny if uh, if while they were walking back, there was some ancient shepherd there, you know, this old shepherd who who remembered 30-something years ago when the same thing happened to him one day on uh, one evening in Bethlehem. And he goes, yep, fellas, kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? I remember back in aught oh when that happened, why they were full of, the sky was full of them guys, you know, just anyway. So it's easy for me to sort of chuckle and think about that. But uh, maybe the reason Luke wants us to know that they were a Sabbath walk away was because they were, they were spending that day of rest, not working, but thinking. They spent the rest of that day of rest in their room praying. Uh, Sabbath is a day when you don't work, you rest and you rest in the Lord. You experience the Lord's presence. You, you pray. You, 
you uh, you spend time with those dear to you and so maybe this is being mentioned as a way of saying that uh, despite the fact that Jesus had told them now you go back to Jerusalem and wait which was the only instruction that they were really given and despite the fact that the uh, the mission seems pretty clear they're supposed to receive the Holy Spirit and then spread the good news all over the world. And despite all of that, their first response is to have Sabbath time, rest, and to think, and to pray. Our next reading is Psalm 68, verses 1 to 10. And then verses 32 and 35. Again, reading from the New International Version. May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. And rejoice before him, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Is God in his holy dwelling? God sets the lonely in families. Ah, let me reread that. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Is God in his holy dwelling? God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in sun-scorched land. And when you went out before the, your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the one of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it, and from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. And then uh, 35 and 36. Which say... Oh no, 34 and 35. No, 32 to 35. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides the ancient skies above, who thunders with mighty voice, proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Well, there we have it. And, uh, Another remarkable passage. As I like to say whenever we're reading the lectionary in particular, it's interesting to try to imagine what those persons who created the lectionary were intending for us to draw from this combination of readings. Given that we just read about the ascension of Jesus, is uh, that he has in many ways demonstrated the very things that are expressed in this psalm may the god arise may god arise may his enemies be scattered may his foes flee before him you know 
he he has come into the world and he has lived subject to it in many ways, even allowing himself to be killed by its powers and principalities. And yet, in uh, in this moment of glory at his ascension, it's clear as he is this resurrected Lord, this one who was dead and who in his own power returned to life and uh, now ascends into heaven that is he leaves this realm and and to what end uh, he goes to rule he goes not to to uh, take the vacation that he was owed after he finished his mission it isn't it isn't as though he's retired or anything because later in scripture we'll hear very clearly that jesus has returned to take the throne and to sit upon the throne, so to speak, over all of creation. And scripture will tell us that he holds all of creation together, that it is Jesus, it is in him that everything exists. And so in in a real sense, he, he's at command central, holding it all together, and he has sent power to those who love him, so that they might be a part of what he is in command of. And so, as I said just a few weeks ago, as the shepherd of his flocks, I have been given charge over one small part of this mass, uh, enormous and unimaginably diverse and gigantic universe that he controls, that he holds in his hand. And he simply said, Pastor, take care of this part for me. And so it's his flock. It's his, it's his little part uh, that he's given to me to care for. But it belongs to the Lord, just as everything belongs to the Lord. And, and so the psalmist seemed to say here as clearly as possible, this is the ultimate authority over all the earth and all creation. And there's really no king, no army, no president, no technology that is beyond his authority. And uh, this becomes all the more clear. And so the psalm that is chosen here seems to indicate pretty plainly that this is what Jesus has come to do, and this is what Jesus has left to do. He has ascended to his place of command and control over all creation. Hallelujah. And so we thank the Lord for this word of promise that gives us a great hope in the Lord. Our next reading is taken from the fourth chapter of Peter, 1 Peter. We're going to read 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14, and then chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. 
which is right here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So once again, we look at these passages in light of their relationship to the others in the choosing of those who created the Revised Common Lectionary. But looking at the passages, too, on their own merit. Now, Peter is speaking to those who are suffering. I think that's pretty evident. And uh, it seems to be a pretty common circumstance. Now, church historians can tell you that persecutions against the Christians and the Jews were common in those early days. What many modern Christians don't understand is, is that these persecutions were not limited to Christians in the overall global sense. It, it, there was an interesting dynamic going on. There were those Jews who persecuted the Christians because they felt, first of all, that the Christians were just wrong. And they also felt that these Christians, with their crazy ideas, were going to bring down the wrath of Rome on all of them. Which was true, in one sense. Um, they were all going to be subject to the wrath of Rome. And mainly because the Romans valued order. They valued a kind of, uh, of orderly society where those who were intellectually and culturally superior ruled everything. And all of those subjected to their authority kept quiet and did what they were supposed to do. And so, uh, I don't know, sounds a little bit like certain aspects of our society today. But anyway, as we read this, we need to understand that Peter is advising them that their proclamation of Christ and their commitment to Christ will bring on suffering, if only because it will put them at odds with their kinsmen who refused to believe that Jesus was any more than a prophet who got a little too full of himself and had to be put down. And then he alludes to some things that are really important to notice. Peter says, rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Um, he has expressed in that little phrase that turnaround in his thinking. Remember when we were reading from the Acts of the Apostles, and, and I mentioned that they were standing there on the Mount of Olives saying, so Jesus, when are you going to take command of this city? And start running the world, and Jesus said, you know, I don't think you guys really get it yet. Well, now we're beginning to see a Peter who gets it. And he says to them, look, there's really nothing more that we can do, or nothing less, than to keep trying to fulfill the mission that he put upon us, which is to receive the Holy Spirit and then proclaim the gospel wherever we are and in any free way we can. 
And if that brings about suffering, it's okay. Because it also brings about the glory of Christ that we will see one day. So he's already learned to live into the reality that he's growing older, will probably suffer a martyr's death. I mean, he's not planning on it, but he just knows how things work in his society. And he's saying to them, as long as we stay on task, as long as we stay tuned into the Holy Spirit, then whatever happens to us ultimately results in the glory of Christ. And for us to be present to witness his glory is the most precious thing. And then as the lectionary writers jump to the end of his letter, he is giving them instructions on how to resist the negative thinking, basically. And how would he know this? Do you think maybe Peter had his own negative thinking from time to time? I mean, uh, Peter is in so many ways the epitome of the Christian. And maybe that's what his role is meant to be in so many ways. And I've always resented and resisted those attempts to make Peter out to be some kind of buffoon because he happens to be the one named in the Bible as speaking rashly or jumping out of the boat. And and these are signs to me not of, of foolishness but of faith and uh, faith that is now directed with wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit is unstoppable. And he says then from his wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit Satan is looking for every opportunity to break you because his whole purpose, his whole existence is about stopping the very thing that Peter just said would happen if we suffered and patiently persevered in our purpose and our mission. And that is the glory of Christ. Well, that's just what Satan doesn't want. So how can he stop you from bringing glory to Christ? Well, for one thing, he can defeat your will. He can morally defeat you. He can defeat your spirit. And so he says, look, God has more than enough grace to see you through. He says, he will restore you. He will make you strong and firm and steadfast. That's verse 10 of chapter 5. He's the one who has the power to overcome Satan. And so when we find ourselves being put down and hurt by the people around us, especially for holding fast to our convictions, realize that that is Satan at work. When we find ourselves even being punished or hurt because of our convictions and our commitment to Christ, understand that that's the price for his glory. He paid that price, and Peter wants us to understand that we may very well have to pay that price too. But in the end, we will be victorious, not, not in some weird and mystical way, not as some sort of pie-in-the-sky promise. He just, he just tells us what I think we all already know, and that is once we've dealt with our disappointment, once we've dealt with the fact that things aren't going to be the way that we wanted them to be, we become comfortable with how they are and we carry on and we persevere and we make the most of how things are. And in that we see the glory of Christ because there is the defeat of Satan. I mean, once you've given up your disappointment and your distrust of God's plan, once you've given up your faithlessness, you've defeated Satan. And once you've turned in faith to Christ, you have given him glory. 
See, I think Peter understood that because he stood at so many points in his life where he was disappointed with Jesus because Jesus wasn't doing what he thought Jesus ought to be doing. And then later on, he recognizes that Jesus has done exactly what defeats Satan and brings glory to God. And now he's able to tell us to do the same. Our final reading for today is taken from the Gospel of John. We're going to read chapter 17, verses 1 to 11. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Wow. I love to read the red ink in my Bible. Now, not all Bibles have the words of Jesus in red ink, but you get my meaning. The red ink is the words of Jesus, and when you read the words of Jesus, it's just so beautiful. The, the poetry, the depth of, of, of love and perfection in the words of Jesus is just incredible. I feel as though I hear him speaking to me when I read his words out loud. Now, perhaps the... <laughs> What you're hearing is the sound of the guinea pig in the next room drinking water. Drink more quietly! So anyway, I, uh, I just, I read these words and I am blown away as I recognize that what Jesus is saying could be, and perhaps this is why the Revised Common Lectionary schedule has this particular prayer in this particular place. It, it could be the very thing he said just as he was preparing to ascend to be in, in his place of glory. And, uh, and you know, we can't really know for sure the timing, but it, it sounds like what he might have said just as he was ready to depart. But listen to what he says. Because he's talking about you. He says... Eternal life is knowing the one true God. He says that this can only happen through Jesus Christ. 
He says that he reveals God to the world. Or at least to those who God has given him out of the world. That might be one of the stakes that the Calvinists use uh, in their argument. But in any case, he says that he prays for us. He says that he's going to be in the place of glory where he began. And he's returning to that glory. And he plans to pray for us. He says that everything he has is God's and everything God has is his. And he says that he is giving all power and authority on earth to us. And that's that Holy Spirit that he says he's going to give. And he says that he prays that God will protect us by the power of God's name. He says that he wants God to keep us safe. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing what he wants to pray for us, what he prays for us, and his purpose for us. And so it's kind of amazing when you think about what is transpiring in the events of the ascension, and you get a sense of Jesus' thoughts at that time. Jesus is thinking about us. He's passionate about his relationship with the Father, looking forward to his place alongside the Father again or in being with the Father. And he's excited about returning to that glory, but at the same time he has this deep, deep compassion for the people who have trusted him, who have been convinced of the truth of who he is, and his way of restoration is this deep compassion for you. Do you hear how much he loves you? Do you hear how much he desires for you to be safe? And what does he mean by that? There's nothing safe about this world. I just read the other day that that the other day, Christians in certain parts of the Philippines have been assaulted by uh, some sort of radical Islam group of uh, ISIS wannabes, and that they have executed Christian professors for being Christian. Does he mean that we're going to be safe from harm on earth, or does he mean something else? Maybe he means that he is praying that we will be safe when the roaring lion Satan comes prowling around looking for a way to defeat us looking for a way to stop us from giving God glory and serving Jesus. Maybe he protects us from the things that defeat us in our completion of the mission he has given us, which is to receive the Holy Spirit and proclaim the good news to all the earth. Maybe his love for us is expressed in his desire to help us do what he has asked us to do for his name's sake. And does that mean, God, that Jesus is vain and somehow wants us to serve his glory? No, it's just that he is glorified when his act of grace and love is repeated through us. He is glorified when we live into who we are as born-again believers 
He is glorified when we do as he does. That's what Peter was trying to say to us. He was trying to say that if we suffer like Christ, then we see glory for Christ. He was saying that if we fulfill the mission, if we keep focused on the purpose, that we are bringing glory to Christ, and we are in a way that we don't fully understand making more rich, meaningful lives for ourselves. Life can be so empty when it's all about a pursuit of temporary worldly things. When it's all about trying to stay safe from harm, to lay low and protect yourself from ever being afraid or sick or hurt by other people. Life is so much more than that. It's about risk-taking mission. It's about being committed to uh, the joy of knowing that whatever you experience, good, bad, or otherwise, if it is part of fulfilling his calling on your life, it is for his glory. And for his name's sake, we pray that he might find us faithful. Amen? I think I heard you say amen. Amen? Well, I hope you like this slightly different format. The format change is a result of the last Bible study that I did just a few days ago. It was, in fact, the last Bible study that I have scheduled for my time as pastor here at uh, Parsons Prairie and Corinth United Methodist Church. And as I was talking with my friends there, I realized that the podcast has become more of a, a hobby thing for me at first. And it was kind of an experiment to see if I could reproduce the glory days when I worked at radio stations. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that it was vain or anything, but I had this idea that I was going to make this sort of a studio quality thing and like some of the really terrific podcasts that I enjoy so much. But then I kept calling it a virtual Bible study, and I thought, well, then if it's a virtual Bible study, then why don't you just do what you do in Bible study? So if you notice a subtle change in the format, it's because I've decided to just do Bible study the same way I do when I'm sitting with my friends around a table. Now with that being said, I do want you to remember that there's no better way to do Bible study than with friends around a table, or in the living room, or in the kitchen, or whatever. You really need to be in community with other Christians. And please, if you're one of those people that just listens to this podcast or podcasts like this and says, well, I, I get all I need out of that. I don't need church. I can worship God in the woods. Do you know how many times I've heard that? Do you know how many times I've said that? And yet, as I've grown older, I've realized that sure, you can experience God in the privacy of your car as you're listening to great broadcasts like this one, or you're listening to music, or if you're walking in the woods, or whatever it is that you're passionate about, you can experience God there. But God is part of a community. Did you hear how Jesus was so passionate about his relationship with the Father? And how he sounded like he was longing to return to the Father? You know, God is community. The three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are community. And they, they want to be together. And they want us to be in community with them. And that's why Jesus paid such a high price. So that we could be in community with God. That we could be family with God. You're really not complete as a Christian unless you're part of a family of faith. And I grant you that not all churches are a good fit for you. I grant you that not all churches are healthy. 
I'll even grant you that there are plenty of churches out there where that roaring lion has total control of the place. And it's anything but a place that brings glory to Christ. But they are out there. Wherever two or more are gathered in His name, He is there. Find that place and be a part of that. Please don't let this podcast be the only thing you do. Let it be a supplement. Join us at Corinth United Methodist Church or Shiloh United Methodist Church. Be a part of what God is doing through this family that God has created. And I'll look forward to visiting with you again next week as we follow the scriptures so that we can know God with heart and mind.